0: Hello, I'm Muriel, and I love true crime.
1: I'm Nick, and I am not a fan.
0: Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. We're headed to the 1980s, Biloxi, Mississippi. We're talking about contract killers, the Dixie Mafia, conspiracy theories, and some Muriel style history lessons.
1: <laughs> this sounds like kind of a greatest hits episode, a little bit.
0: Yeah, it's it's a I'm fascinated with this story. It's really interesting. Okay, so this is part one uh-huh. of the assassination of one of Biloxi's most prominent couples. Vincent and Margaret Sherry.
1: I think I'm in the mood for this right now. Are you (laughs) kidding me? 80s? The Dixie Mafia?
0: Yeah, there's a lot going on. Okay, we're telling this in two parts because there's a lot going on with this story. But this is pretty wild. And Mm -hmm. I did some kind of deep dive, like, history context of, like,
1: the story. I knew you'd be getting your hands dirty. I did.
0: I got them very dirty. In fact, I wrote a whole section uh-huh. Uh, about, like, the Civil War and the Revolutionary War where I mixed up 18 and 1700s. <laughs> and it took me, like, an hour to figure out. I was like, why isn't this tracking? I
1: don't understand. <laughs> this is back to the future? <laughs> I don't know, man. I went to college, like, 15 years ago. <laughs> We're tired, man. We can't. Do not hold us accountable. Uh, But we do want to take a quick, quick moment and celebrate my brother Mario. Mario does our music here at Miro's Murders, and he also just produced a song with the legendary Kansas City rapper Tech Nine. The song is called Mega Grit, and we're going to put the link to the music video in the show notes of this episode. We're going to talk a little more about it. We're going to gas up, Mario. We're going to fanboy just a little bit more in the outro of this episode about this new song. Uh, We're really excited about it, so stick around in the, for the outro for that. And if any listeners out there are curious about how to get involved in our show, please check out www.murielsmurders.com/support.
0: All right. This is a true story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So, if any listeners are like, "Nick, and they're kind of sensitive about those things you don't want to hear it just listen to a different podcast
1: yeah we'll probably end up cursing and joking so if you hate that kind of thing you know take out your earbuds and just listen to the birds sing (laughs) i highly recommend it
0: (laughs) all right nikki are you ready to hear this story no okay let's get started
1: just have like a little giddiness going on. Like, I don't know what you're going to say. I don't know where you're going to start.
0: Today, my boy woke up and said he's happy for no reason. And you have been bringing joy to my life all day. I just have to tell you that. Yeah. Cause you you are just walking around with so many sparkles in her
1: eyes. Well, let's see if some of that Muriel magic can come through and just quench this happiness, Uh, you know, just stomp it out. Give me some murders, Muriel, Make, make me suffer.
0: If you're not scared about the murders, you'll be bored by the history. Okay, here we go. The year is 1987. Ronald Reagan is in his second term. The Unabomber is terrorizing the country, protesting the rise of modern technology. Prozac has hit the market for the first time uh-huh. and the Bengals are topping the charts with their timeless hit, Walk Like an Egyptian. <laughs> okay, great.
1: <laughs> America, ladies and gentlemen.
0: <laughs> Every time you introduce any year in the 80s, it's yeah. always just all the weirdest stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. I love
1: it. Yeah. So on September 19, mm-hmm. 1987. I'm three years old. Okay. Sorry. <laughs>
0: 500 of Biloxi, Mississippi's 50,000 residents are crowded into the Cathedral of the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary for a double funeral. The town was mourning the brutal gangland-style murder of Circuit Court Judge Vincent Sherry Jr. Mm. and his wife, former city council member and mayoral hopeful, margaret sherry oh my god the longtime residents of biloxi had been married for almost 40 years Mm -hmm. vince and margaret had been found by vincent's longtime friend and law partner pete Hillette, three days earlier they were shot to death in their family home pete and vince started their law firm Hillette and sherry in 1981 Pete Hallett was a put-together dude in the 1980s style. He had slick back hair, orange tan, thick mustache, impeccably dressed, you know what I'm talking about.
1: Solid dude.
0: Yeah, and although Pete Hallett was over a decade younger than Vince Sherry, he held his own. In fact, in 1972, at the age of 30, Hallett was appointed to the county court bench, becoming the youngest judge in Mississippi history at the time. Mm. After retiring from the bench, Hillette worked as a defense lawyer in Biloxi, eventually opening a practice with Vince. Mm -hmm. Hillette was also really close with Margaret Sherry and worked tirelessly on her 1985 campaign for mayor of Biloxi. He was there every step of the way.
1: Yeah. Biloxi is sort of a famously small town or it's very affordable, right? Like I I that name pops up in my modern day I think searches for like the most affordable small towns in America or something.
0: Maybe. I think if I researched that in depth I would probably just stab myself in the eye with a fork. <laughs> but maybe. Yeah. It, it's definitely like an old city. It's been yeah. around for a long time, you yeah. know, in terms of the like country. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Solid. Okay. (laughs) And we'll actually talk a little bit about why it might have come up to the forefront in your mind Uh later.
1: Okay. I'm looking forward to that. Mm.
0: So three days earlier, three days before the funeral, on Wednesday, September 16th, Vince Sherry was late for court. His staff couldn't get a hold of him and they were getting super stressed about it. Vince and Margaret had taken the previous day off to take their dog for cataract surgery and visit their youngest daughter at college. And no one had actually seen the couple since Monday. By late Wednesday morning, after scrambling to get in touch with Vince Sherry, his staff ended up calling Pete Hallett to go check on the couple. Mm-hmm. Pete first, he sent his wife Sandra over to the house. He's busy. He's got his law firm and stuff like that. So she shows up. And when she sees both the Sherry's cars in the driveway, yeah. she gets nervous. I would totally be nervous.
1: Hell yeah. And
0: she says, you know, she calls Pete and she says, you need to go. In here yourself. I'm not going. <laughs> yeah,
1: for sure. I'm not knocking on this door. Yeah. Yeah, hell yeah.
0: The couple lived in the ancient Oaks neighborhood of Biloxi. So that's flanked by the Chitaka Buffer and Biloxi Rivers uh-huh. and kind of tucked away next to the sun-kissed country club so it's a very like pretty Mm -hmm, meandering mm -hmm. i mean i've just looked at pictures on google maps but it's just a very beautiful meandering area it's
1: like the it's like very far south in mississippi right
0: yeah it's like the farthest south you can get
1: so this is like the deepest south of the deepest south pretty much yeah
0: yeah it's very it's way it's it's way down
1: there and you got a mayoral hopeful and a famous lawyer murdered in their house Mm mm-hmm In ancient Oaks neighborhood.
0: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I like this Nick recap.
1: (laughs) Just as we go. Just making sure I put these pieces of this puzzle together.
0: Good. Somebody's got it. Okay. So Pete stepped over the newspapers and the mail piled up on the porch and entered the home. (sighs) From the driveway, he had heard the couple's small dogs barking, Mm -hmm. and when he opened the front door, he was hit with the smell of dog feces. They had obviously been stuck inside Mm. of the house for days. Hallett moved slowly through the house, and when he found Vince's body on the first floor, surrounded by blood, he didn't wait to find Margaret. Mm -hmm. Vince ran out the front door and called police. Yeah. Vince and Margaret's four adult children were absolutely blindsided by their parents' murder. Oh, my God. During the funeral service, their eldest daughter, Lynn Sposito, kept going back to these long phone calls she had with her politically minded mother. So Uh Margaret, you know, we'll come to learn more about Margaret, but she was just very involved in the local politics and very riled up right Uh she's always riled up about something yeah about corruption in Mississippi and how she was gonna blow the lid off this town Uh uh you know very involved and it felt very dramatic right sure
1: yeah she's like a firecracker
0: right and you know to Lynn Sposito this is just more or less conspiracy sounding stuff like they kind of one-sided conversation that you let roll on while you fold your laundry. (laughs) (laughs) Like, and I gotta say,
1: (laughs) we've all been on the receiving end of that phone (laughs) call.
0: My dad and I, that's about 90% of the phone calls we talk about. The other day, I swear to God, I called my dad (laughs) because I got this, like this kind of gig, this one-off job that was super, super fun and interesting. Yeah. And I wanted to tell him about it because you know, he, he I don't know why. Why? Because Because you want
1: him to think it's interesting.
0: Right. But that doesn't really happen most of the time. But I thought, (laughs) oh, he'll he'll want to hear about this. I told him about it. And then he was like, wow, that's so great. You know what's interesting about that? (laughs) And then he told me a 20 minute story about a dream he had (laughs) about the most beautiful bar he'd ever seen. (laughs) and i don't even remember how it related back to what i was saying i think in some peripheral way like a word that Uh i used or uh something like that and at the end you know i always have to choose between being like well i love you dad or like why did you tell me that (laughs) (laughs) you know like and i think age helps you with that but of course so i was just like washing the dishes (laughs) And he was telling me about the stained glass windows and the (laughs) wax on the bar. I was like, oh, my God.
1: So this so this girl has memories like that of her mom just talking about whoever she's got beef with in the town.
0: Yeah. And she's like, it's an hour. And at the end, she's like, so you want to hear about your grandkids? Yeah, 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 yeah. But now, you know, at her parents funeral, Lynn wished she had paid more attention. Like, who are these people?
1: Right. Right?
0: Who are these people? She's not saying specifically what's going on. She's saying stuff like, things are getting hot down here. Dah, yeah, dah, dah, dah. Totally. But she never really asks, like, who are you talking
1: about? Huh.
0: The Sherry's four adult children were pleasantly surprised when Pete Hallett jumped up to make this off-the-cuff, loving eulogy. It was something that was really heartfelt for everyone, yeah. and he wasn't scheduled to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, they were only just a little bit put off when, at the end, he also took the opportunity to hint as his intention to run for mayor in Margaret's honor and on her anti-corruption platform. Mm-hmm. So they were like, mm-hmm. okay, dude. It also <laughs> turned out that the eulogy wasn't actually that off the cuff. Uh-huh. Pete Hallett's staff had, uh, after the funeral, passed out copies of the spontaneous eulogy to the press outlets that were there covering Oh, the so
1: this fool is using this as an outlet to announce his candidacy.
0: Yeah, I think that, though,
1: uh-huh.
0: according to Lynn it really did feel, like, important. Like, it was probably the most powerful eulogy at this funeral. It was, like, a very wonderful thing for him to do. And she was really grateful for it at the time. Yeah. That is, like, it was less, like...
1: Straight up opportunistic.
0: Well, it was, but then it's Uh kind of, like, he could... People contain multitudes, right? Sure. Like, at the time, it kind of felt like, okay, well, he could probably be both of these people, Yeah. right?
1: Right. At the time. Okay. Go.
0: <laughs> God damn it. I always try not to tip my hand <laughs> to you, but you're so sensitive. <laughs> yeah, so that's true. So after the funeral and during the wake, the air was thick with rumors. Uh-huh. A lot of them pointing to Margaret's political rival and the current mayor, Gerald Blessy. So Lynn actually recalls like a woman at the wake walking up to her and saying, honey, 75% of the people in this town believe Gerald Blessy had your mom and daddy killed and the other 25% are related to him.
1: (laughs) Oh, damn. There's
0: a lot of just, people, i just like, I don't, I've never been to the South. I'm always like, people are so cool. (laughs) It's <laughs> like the best way with language.
1: I know. That's amazing. I mean, that's also horrifying. It's amazing. Yeah, it's horrifying. It's horrifying. I mean, and, and it's also just,
0: like so casually. You yeah, know, right. It's like, oh my God.
1: And also in the 80s, yeah. like during my life, this isn't like some ancient times. Oh, yeah. You know? yeah I
0: was like, yeah. <laughs> Salad. <laughs> So Vince and Margaret had Uh met at Western Kentucky University where Margaret double majored in mathematics and art, which was actually pretty uncommon in that age for a woman to do and for a family to send their daughter to college. Well,
1: and mathematics and art. Yeah. She's like brilliant in two ways. Yeah, probably. (laughs) A lot of times like economics and math or art and like sewing or some shit. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Damn. So they met. Margaret's parents actually briefly disowned her for marrying the Brooklyn-born Yankee, Uh Vincent Sherry, but they did it anyway. They started their family. And after college, Margaret took her double major and she worked for an architect and was the breadwinner for the family, while Vince joined the military and put himself through law school. So Mm -hmm. two very ambitious people. Sure. Specializing in military law, Vince worked at several military bases, moving his young family around. I think the longest stint that they did was in Vietnam. They were there for a number, number of years. Oh, interesting. Eventually in 1970, Vince retired from the Air Force with the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. The family settled down in Biloxi, where Vince worked as a criminal defense attorney and Margaret got involved in local politics. hmm So these two (laughs) had a fun relationship. Okay, okay? Margaret was a hardcore conservative Republican, while Vince was a Democratic defense attorney. Uh huh. So like their their personalities, at least their public personalities, was Vince was this like fun, gregarious, easy to talk to dude. Yeah. Margaret was more of a hard assed, like strict, uh, uh, like. (laughs) tough-ass knuckle-slapping nun kind of personality. <laughs> yeah, she's like yeah. taking on... She's really tough, you
1: know? Uh-huh, uh-huh, right. And that was back in the day when people on opposite sides of the political spectrum still like got buried and liked each other. Yeah,
0: so <laughs> that was still possible. <laughs> they were always a really well-respected and loving family, but they had their moments. Uh, because I don't know... I'm dark or whatever. Like Uh I read a bunch of this and a a few stories for the family popped out to me that feel like these two stories might be enough to just kind of fill out this picture after we talk about accomplishments. (laughs)
1: Okay, good. (laughs)
0: So the first was there's this family legend that Lynn Sposito talks about, Uh about the time Vince punched Margaret in the face in front of her mother after Margaret suggested he cook dinner. So then Margaret took him into a back bedroom, pulled out a gun, stuck it in his face, and said, you're going to go out there and apologize to me in front of my mother. And he did it. So
1: that's one thing. And then the other one was... <laughs> Wait, like you're like, I might be a little dark, but here's the story of the darkest shit imaginable. I'm just
0: saying like... I read a lot of stuff about this couple. Uh It's all really interesting. Uh The book that I read, it's called Mississippi Mud by Edward Hume, has a lot more family anecdotes. (laughs) Some of them are really drastic. Uh It's a different time period. And I'm not trying to excuse all that kind of stuff. But like, it's just interesting because I think generally, you know, the idea is when we think of an idyllic family, it's has a certain look to it and i'm just saying also when you read the biography
1: they're punching each other and pulling guns in each other's face
0: (sighs) it's pretty wild i mean i I, like i don't i don't know why i don't know why i'm just like thinking about my childhood and things like (laughs) that but i definitely have a few stories of like that i tell that i think are funny and then people go, oh, my God. Afterwards. Yeah, right. Of course. Of course. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. there's something I relate to that, you know, where you go, oh, yeah, da, 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 there's this gun. <laughs> and then people are like,
1: Jesus Christ. Yeah. One man's chuckle is another man's record scratch.
0: Yeah. I mean, Lin Sposito and the other kids talk about their parents really fondly. And uh-huh. some of these are kind of almost like these dark jokes you know what i mean Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like
1: sure i get it i yeah i I give that yeah i I, you know that's fair
0: after the funeral for instance Uh the sun herald was interviewing all of the kids about their parents And Eric Sherry, who's their oldest son, told this amusing anecdote about how he stole $4 from his mom's drawer and his dad caught him. And this is the quote from the paper. I took the bus downtown to a record shop and bought some 45s. My father found these and whipped me really bad. He brought over a friend of his who was in the CIA and told me they were taking me to jail. My father drugged me out into the living room and I was just about... To go out the front door, and he said, Just don't do it again. And he was seven years old at the time. Sobbing. (laughs) But, like, this is like the happy memory that he's
1: talking about at his parents, like right after his parents' funeral to this newspaper. Right. The time my father and his CIA friend, like, psyoped me.
0: Yeah. I mean, seven, man. He was like a kid. But like I said, the kids insisted it was a very deeply loving family. Uh Like their dad (laughs) cried when each of them went off to college. Mm -hmm. Mom and dad had a really deeply loving and romantic relationship despite all the political differences. Mm -hmm. They felt like they were a very solid family union. So taking all that into consideration, Biloxi was an interesting place for the odd couple. A world of white-columned antebellum mansions, oak-lined streets, and like hanging Spanish moss Mm -hmm. with a long and storied place in American history that also had a long and storied history of grifting its ass off. Okay. (laughs) Okay, So when their Sherry's were making their home in Biloxi, they each had to choose which Biloxi they were going to work for. And we're going to talk about this. So this is the history lesson that I'm going to give you. Okay, good. I'm really insecure about it, but I'm just going to do it. Okay? The two
1: Biloxis,
0: the double Biloxis. So in the heart of the city, there were these beautiful homes, grace and Southern charm, supported by good Christian values. And then down the furthest south you could go mm-hmm. on the strip of beaches lining the Gulf coast all that went out the window. There along a strip of blacktop were miniature golf courses, strip clubs, cheap motels, fast food and bars, neon signs and prostitution and drugs. So mm-hmm. it's a very different place, just blocks away from Gotcha. homes. Okay. On the other side of this blacktop where artificial white sand beaches paid for with local taxes and then an endless stretch of blue water from the Gulf of Mexico. So I'm going to tell you some history. I thought all this was really interesting. I'm not sure if you will, but we're going to give it a shot.
1: I have a feeling you have a pretty good batting average with this stuff. I think it's going to be good.
0: Okay, so some of this is just... A series of events that may or may not have led to the creation of the Strip and Biloxi, but it kind of gives it context. Great. Okay, so we're going to start with a little thing called the Whiskey Rebellion. Mm -hmm. In 1791, a few years after the Revolutionary War, the federal government tried to make some cash to kind of make up for the war by levying its first domestic tax, So this was a super heavy tax on booze, Mm -hmm. which was Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton's brainchild.
1: Right. I remember this from the musical. He's like... We're going to get frisky if you try to tax our whiskey right, or something right. like that. So that's, that is that is <laughs> okay. that is what he says. <laughs> something like this. <that. laughs> I know.
0: I got excited about this because of the musical. So let's uh, be real. Uh, so people were used to, especially on like the Western frontier, uh-huh. people were really used to bootlegging their own liquor and they were not feeling the tax at all. Sure. And they also, this kind of uh, is credited for being one of like the root sources of this idea of like states' rights, one of the first times that people felt like this type of taxation by the federal government was the slap in the face for states' rights. So that mm. was the other thing that people okay. were upset about. So, you know, people were not feeling it. They're like, we like making our whiskey and drinking our moonshine. And the federal government was like, dudes, come on. We're definitely going to tax you. United States, bro. Right? <laughs> And that's how the Whiskey Rebellion came about. Uh In 19... See, I told you, I messed up all these <laughs> things. In
1: 1312. <laughs> in
0: 1794, yeah. 500 armed men in Pennsylvania attacked a tax inspector at his home. So Ooh. this guy was trying to collect taxes on the
1: whiskey. Oh no, the tax man got it?
0: Yeah, so seeing this as the first real test of the new U.S. government, George Washington led a 12,000-man strong army to qu- squash the rebellion. So they, he gets all the approval he gets out there with his horses. They go to squash this rebellion and before they get there, pretty much everyone had ran away. So they were gone. <laughs> but they kept right on bootlegging yeah, <laughs> So yeah. they were like, okay, we can't fight George Washington. <laughs> yeah. Right. but they really can't catch us, right? We're just gonna keep doing it. yeah yeah. So this whiskey rebellion ultimately contributed to George Washington and Alexander Hamilton's Federalist Party losing power. Mm -hmm. Opponents of the booze tax backed Thomas Jefferson, helping him win the presidency over John Adams and leaving Hamilton and George Washington's Federalist Party in the dust. After being incredibly unpopular and almost impossible to enforce, the booze tax was repealed in 1802. Mm -hmm. So, in 1817, Mississippi became, this is where Biloxi is, became the 20th state to join the union. And in 1848, the fishing industry in Biloxi was born. So we're cruising. Biloxi is getting, you know, its feet wet in fish cannery. (laughs) This is going to be a big industry for them. Yeah. Now, in 1861, Mississippi was the second state to declare secession from the U.S. and join the Civil War on the side of the Confederacy. Right. Fighting for expanded states' rights. Again, we talked about that in the... uh, Whiskey Rebellion, uh-huh. lower tariffs, and then the right to enslave other human beings.
1: Right. Which they were doing on Moss at right. the time.
0: Mississippi had the third largest population of slaves in the U.S. at the time.
1: God damn. So in
0: 1865, the Civil War ended with Mississippi obviously on the losing side. After the Civil War, Biloxi recouped its losses through the fishing and canning industry. So Biloxi became a seafood packing hub. Mm -hmm. Immigrants from Poland and then areas around Serbia, Montenegro, and Croatia came to work the industry, eventually developing this impressive network, like a good old boys network that still exists today. Hmm. So Mayor Blessy, lawyer Pete Hallett, Mm -hmm. and some kingpins notable kingpins of the dixie mafia or what some would call the cornbread cosa nostra <laughs> were all distant children of this cannery empire uh-huh but Lexi became known as the seafood capital of the world in 1903 and so they're kind of cooking along and it's becoming this big yeah hop, right
1: gotcha even though it's
0: a small city that's what i'm saying is like it it has made its name for itself in mm-hmm. american history yeah in 1908, Mississippi outlawed alcohol, and prohibition in Mississippi would last for the next 58 years. So, so
1: weak sauce. It's man. like
0: it was one of the first states to adopt it, if not the first, uh-huh. and then it was the last state to get rid of prohibition. Yeah. But that didn't bother folks on the Gulf Coast with open water and sea breezes in their hair. These folks, born from the Whiskey Rebellion generation, never really stopped bootlegging. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And as Prohibition in Mississippi started over a decade earlier than the rest of the country, they got a big old head start in the bootlegging economy. Biloxi was already a shipping hub due to the fishing and canning industry. So they were poised in a central position on the Gulf Coast where one could just import and export illegal booze pretty easily
1: Mm -hmm. right right right
0: eventually the biloxi shoreline became a national hub for illegal booze gambling sex work and all of its attending joys and sorrows (laughs) the next big evolution of the biloxi strip started in 1941 during world war ii okay so this is when it kind of gets in the less esoteric maybe this is why it happened Uh to the uh, uh like pretty much like how that Okay, good. <laughs> so, in 1941, the US government established the Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, bringing over 500,000 soldiers into a city with a population of around 50,000.
1: so (laughs) (laughs) They're like, we need some mini golf courses. Are there any prostitutes? Can we get all of that right now, please? This, of course,
0: provided an ideal clientele for gambling, booze, and prostitution on the strip. By 1950, there were bootleg slot machines all over Biloxi. We're talking mm. gas stations. We're talking grocery stores. We're talking, you know, I don't know, the cheese shop. It's but just all the over the place. Shop.
1: But, but when you say bootleg, you just mean like unregulated slot machines, slot machines, that, machines. that are illegal. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha.
0: Uh, in 1951, the Air Force conducted a survey and found uh, over 1,200 illegal slot machines in Biloxi, along with numerous organized blackjack and poker games, which were also illegal. Uh-huh. The Air Force estimated that at the time, out of its $4 million payroll paid out to folks on the Keesler Air Force Base... Yeah. <laughs> 500,000, or about one eighth of the total payroll, went to gambling debts. (laughs) Air Force guys were selling their military gear to pay for debts and like trying to strip cars. And after a few servicemen committed suicide related to gambling debts in 1951, the U.S. Senate held a hearing to try and address the issue. Oh man. And again, Here you might see, if you look hard enough and you're just listening to what I say, the spirit of the whiskey rebellion. So no one at the hearings from Biloxi even attempted to hide that illegal gambling was a huge source of revenue for the city and the state. Mm -hmm. The Senate was floored when they asked Biloxi industry leaders what the biggest income generator was in Biloxi, and they were all like, Gambling, bro. (laughs)
1: Yeah, obviously. (laughs) said
0: it. Police openly admitted to being paid off by criminals and defended their cut of slot machine income, saying the $200,000 a year cut was a crucial source of income for the local police department. Damn. Um, They said they like straight up would be like, so what we do is we record all this income as disorderly conduct fines. So they mm-hmm, say like, mm-hmm. okay, we're going to let you do it. We're just going to fine you. Right. And then each month, the chief of police would just make up a bunch of names and then record the fines under these fake people. And they're just like telling the Senate <laughs> yeah. like, we're doing it now. We're going to keep doing it. Dude. Yeah,
1: right. Like, what's the problem here?
0: So all of us came out and there was a, you know, a little bit of a pause on gambling and stuff like that. But pretty much the hearing did very little to deter illegal gambling. Mm -hmm. And after a few months, the strip blew up bigger and badder than ever. A serviceman could get an under-the-table wiener rub with the purchase of a $6 champagne glass filled with flat Coke. Neon signs went up, and the criminal (laughs) underground took hold. So this...
1: Selling (laughs) under-the-table wiener rubs.
0: (laughs) This was the heyday Of the Dixie Mafia, which is basically not at all like, you know, what we think about when we think of Mafia. It was just a loose collection of Uh, mostly southern born criminals who ran this strip. There was no sort of hierarchy within the system or a family system. It's
1: just So it really wasn't organized. No, it was just Uh this is
0: a more of a moniker given by yeah. Newspapers and stuff like sure. that. And we're going to get really into the Dixie Mafia in part two. I'm oh, excited great. to tell you about yeah, it. Yeah, of course. There is some organization to it in terms of people who know each other and stuff, but it's nothing like... It's just, you know,
1: a, it's just a tiny town. Everyone knows each other. Well,
0: this spanned across like six states. There's wow. tons of murders. There's a lot of stuff that went down with the Dixie Mafia. They have a really long history, Yeah. but it's not like you know this idea that one person is in charge and then there's rank and file people underneath totally. them and rules and yeah, initiations yeah. and like country of origin having a piece like a piece of the pie it's yeah, just right. like a bunch of dudes sitting around being like well i'm gonna rob this thing you know And they're <laughs> like okay i'll do it with you you know <laughs> <laughs> so the strip was run by the dixie mafia right yeah. so Got whatever it. that is yep. that is owned by the dixie mafia okay So let's go back to Vince and Margaret. Mm -hmm. Now, while Margaret was horrified by the corruption in Biloxi, Vince and Pete Hallett made their money as defense lawyers for the people running the strip. While Margaret was campaigning for mayor as someone who would shut down the strip and run the cornbread Cosa Nostra out of town, Vince was in court fighting for their right to party. In 1985, <laughs> yeah. Margaret lost her mayoral election by less than 500 votes to Mayor Blessy. The next year, with the help of Pete Hallett's political connections to the Mississippi governor and against the wa- wishes of our new Mayor Blessy, Vince Sherry was appointed a state circuit court judge. Mm-hmm. The year after that, both Margaret and Vince were assassinated. So, given everything we now know about Biloxi politics, there were lots of reasons to suspect that the Sherrys were killed either by a bad guy Margaret was fighting or by a dissatisfied bad guy Vince was defending.
1: (laughs) No chance that it was a good guy.
0: Uh, Probably not. (laughs) I mean, you know, I don't know how many good guys are assassinating
1: people there. Murdering (laughs) couples in their living rooms.
0: Now, on top of all that, the murder also had all the hallmarks of a contract killing. There was no cash or jewelry stolen. There was no forced entry, no fingerprints. The shells found at the scene were from a twenty two caliber weapon, a semi-automatic Ruger pistol. Mm-hmm. And this is a relatively quiet gun. It has the reputation for being preferred by people who do things like this like contract killers mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i guess i don't know anything about guns i've read a bunch about this but some of it's kind of like maybe i'll say something dumb but yeah essentially it's like a relatively quiet gun with small ammunition less likely to produce an exit wound
1: seems like you'd also have to be close
0: yeah you have to be close yeah and the idea is that these smaller bullets tend to ricochet around a skull or a body, so they cause the maximum amount of damage oh. in a quiet, cleaner way. So that's why.
1: That is... Mm.
0: It's pretty drastic.
1: Yeah, that's horrible. That's, I can't... Okay.
0: Both Vince and Margaret were found with multiple gunshot wounds to the head in a double tap pattern, which is another sign of a contract killer. So a double tap pattern is two shots fired really close together Mm -hmm. so it just has more of a likelihood of hitting your target
1: yeah
0: police found pieces of foam around the bodies which indicated that the person who committed the killings used a cheap homemade silencer something often called an angola science silencer at the time after the habits of prisoners at the angola prison so Mm. that was
1: so like maybe the idea is he'll use a silencer so because they were in different parts of the house, right? Mm-hmm. Cuz dude just saw the the husband and left Margaret was upstairs. Right. So you kill one, the person upstairs can't hear you. Mhm. And, and not to mention neighbors or whatever. Exactly. And yeah. you
0: can't you at the time, you know, silencers were illegal, I think. Maybe they're still illegal now. Yeah. But there's a way to produce a cheap homemade yeah. one with foam in a bucket or something like that.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean in Godfather 2, Robert De Niro, just wraps his hand in, like, a, <laughs> a dirty rag.
0: Right, or you can use a pillow. That's, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, people right. do do that. Yeah. And finally, the last thing that suggests a contract killing is the timing of the murders. So whoever murdered the couple more than likely knew their habits and schedules because the murders occurred the night before they were planning to take off work and go out of town. This meant that the couple wasn't missed until two days after the murder. So the, yeah. the timing of that is, like... Whoever
1: got gotcha. you did this
0: either knows them very yeah. well or has been watching them. Yeah. So we're going to jump back to the fall of 1987, right after the funeral of Vince and Margaret Sherry. Yeah. After their parents' funeral, Eric Sherry and his sister Lynn Spazito stopped by their dad's old office to speak with Pete Hallett about all of these rumors they're hearing and whatever's going on. They have a lot of, you know, anxiety about it and they want to talk to their father's closest friend.
1: I have to stop you on one thing. I'm so sorry. Her name is Lynn and her last name is Spazito or yes. her first name is Lynn Spazito.
0: <laughs> she married a man named uh, whose last name is Spazito. So that's uh-huh. why she's not Lynn Sherry. She's like yeah. 30.
1: Her name is Lynn. You just keep saying Lynn Spazito. <laughs> it's just, it's just, Making right. sure that wasn't some Mississippi magic that I just Clint wasn't aware Spicino. of.
0: <laughs> That's going to be the name of our first child.
1: <laughs>
0: the first name. All right. So they stop <laughs> yeah. by their dad's old office. Yeah. Speak with Pete Hillette. Yeah. So the Hillette and Sherry law office was in a shabby strip mall in Biloxi next to a loan company, a welfare office, and a plasma donation center.
1: Oh, so this is, they're more like, like a kind of like a low rent Better Call Saul esque operation. Really, I thought they were like classy.
0: Well, it gives you that impression. Uh-huh. And I think they did make a lot of money, but sure. there's a lot of stuff they were doing that was pretty, I mean, their clients are pretty wild, you know? Yeah,
1: right. Yeah, it sounds like Better Call Saul. Saul's offices
0: yeah I mean the Dixie Mafia weren't like I don't know like uh, Don Corleone like (laughs) sitting in a beautiful office with like mahogany wood (laughs) chairs
1: skyscrapers like overlooking the city stroking their goatees it's
0: another it's a whole (laughs) other yeah
1: of course okay good
0: so Halette Set them down in the dusty, quiet office and basically just told them to straight up stop worrying about conspiracy theories. It's like, they won't bring your parents back. And the best thing you can do is just drop it, mourn their loss Uh and just move on. Go home. You know, you're not going to be able to solve whatever happened. (laughs)
1: What? What? They're like, can we solve our parents murder, please? He's like, like, just take a nap. (laughs)
0: He's like, it's not going to happen. And. Eric and Lynn definitely left that meeting disheartened, yeah. maybe with a little side eye. Yeah. And then they had to go on to interview with the police, to speak with the police. Now, the kids were wary of the Biloxi Police Department from the start because they all suspected Mayor Blessy had something to do with their parents' murder. And this is essentially... Mayor Blessy's police department, right? Mm-hmm. So it already felt like they couldn't trust them. And now Hillette's telling them to go home, you know, it's yeah. it's very feeling it's feeling very weird, right? Yeah, for sure. In fact, there were so many rumors in Biloxi circling around the murder that Mayor Blessy actually held a news conference to specifically say he wasn't the murderer. <laughs> Oh no. Now what most people didn't know at the time was Mayor Blessy was actually the target of an FBI investigation for like a completely unrelated thing. Yeah. Blessy had been trying to develop a part of the Blessy waterfront using federal grants, but the funds somehow were misappropriated by the mayoral office along the way. And Margaret Sherry had been cooperating with the feds to bring charges against Blessy, so that mm. was happening right before she was murdered. Yeah, and actually, a year later in 1988, Blessy was indicted on conspiracy, extortion, and mail fraud charges, yeah. but he was ultimately acquitted. So. But the
1: kids don't know this at the time. No, so They're, not, they're not like that. talking to the FBI, and they're like, "Yeah, your mom was like helping us uncover this thing."
0: Right. Well, they don't know this at the time. They don't know right? it
1: at the time. Yeah.
0: So, Blessy was never connected to the Sherry case, but I just thought this tidbit was really interesting given Margaret's talk of bringing down corrupt bigwigs and blowing the lid off the town. Mm -hmm. So, it was interesting given all of these conversations she's had with Lynn, you know, about this random, dark, shadow government or whatever. Yeah.
1: Even though it's not that random or dark, it's just the one government that's out in the open.
0: Right, 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 right. Thank you. But even before... Lynn knew about Mayor Blessy's scandal, she had plenty of reasons to question the work of Biloxi law enforcement at the time. So there were like a kind of series of mistakes and mishaps. I'm just going to give you the overview of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Vince Sherry religiously kept an appointment book. It was kind of a running joke with his friends and family yeah. about how he would never leave the house without it. And if he did, You know, this is before cell phones. If he did, he would make everyone turn around and he would go back and get it. Sure. And the police at first said that nothing had been taken from the house and it wasn't a burglary. And no one had checked to see whether or not his date book was missing. Mm -hmm. And it totally was. So that was like the first thing that, was a bit of a red flag for Lynn because she was thinking, why didn't Pete Hallett ask about the date book? Yeah. Why didn't anybody ask us if there was anything missing? You know, that was the first thing we thought of, but yeah. the police hadn't really clocked it. Like they had just been like, nothing's missing, right. right? Before they knew nothing was missing. Right. And you can tell that it might've been really important because if a killer wants to take the date book, the assumption is that there's something in the date book that could implicate the killer.
1: mm Like, for instance, next Thursday, I'm having lunch with, you know... Mayor Blessing. Right. And, you know, he told me, you know, he wants to kill me. So, you know, he's writing all that in his date book.
0: I mean, they actually did have dinner with someone that night and nobody knows who it was. They Mm. didn't... Nobody can confirm it. They tracked it down to some sort of cafeteria and the people at the cafeteria said, oh, we know that couple, they weren't in that night. Yeah. But they had specific contents in their stomach, some sort of salad from a restaurant
1: Oh, and they tracked down like, oh, this is the only place that has this kind of ranch dressing. They there, had fancy ranch that night. It was like
0: garbanzos and raisins. It was one of those classic <laughs> 80s like hell salads, yeah. broccoli crunch
1: <laughs> or something. They're like, we know where they were.
0: Yeah, right. So they kind of tracked it down, but they couldn't find mm. it. But they know that they went out to dinner and they pretty much suspect they went out to dinner with a friend. Yeah. And police were kind of losing things left and right. Police lost the whole ass briefcase of Vince Sherry's. Mm -hmm. The other thing they did is after investigating their mother, Margaret Sherry's briefcase, they released it into the custody of a woman who she was in opposition to on the city council without any explanation basically this woman was like well i want to see her briefcase Who know like they don't say why maybe they just gave it to her they just gave it to her and the family was like why did you give that to her and they're like ideological opposites she's like on team blessy you know so margaret that's one of the people that margaret thinks she's gonna blow the top off you (laughs) know whatever there was missing mail from the home that was completely unaccounted for uh vince had a piece of paper with a woman's name and phone number in his pocket when he died and no one checked up on the lady they didn't call the number this is all stuff they kind of found later yeah and probably the biggest mistake had to do with the suspected killer's vehicle basically neighbors had seen a yellow firebird in the neighborhood the night the sherry's were killed and there was a yellow firebird that had been recently stolen from a local car rental agency. So right after the murder, police scoured Biloxi looking for this yellow firebird and didn't find it. So they eventually wrote it off. And Biloxi is a very small town. Yeah. Then, eight days later... It's just found parked out in the open at a nearby apartment complex. And the residents said, yeah, this has been here for eight days. <laughs> like, no, we just were like, whose car is this? So it had been out in the open the entire time. <laughs> now, upon inspection, yeah. police found that the dome light had been disabled. So this is an indication that it was probably used by someone trying to keep a low profile. So this is another box check that it might be the car of the killer. Yeah. Police were able to pull hairs And fibers and a couple fingerprints from the car. Now, police told Lynn that I I have Spazito written in (laughs) Just
1: say Lynn Spazito at this point.
0: Now, police told Lynn Spazito they were sending the contents to an FBI lab. But actually, this evidence stayed in a locker for months The police got some bad information and they mistakenly thought the car had been stolen after the murder. So thinking they didn't have the right car after all, they gave the Firebird back to the rental agency who then turned around and sold it, all while telling Lynn Sposito the FBI lab was just real backed up and they'd have the results any day now.
1: Oh my God. And they were lying to her about that.
0: Yeah. But police were fairly certain Vince Sherry had an idea of who was after him. And this was like their first, you know, we're on the right track. At least we're looking for a killer. Mm -hmm. They even came across a recording of Vince at court talking about it. So during a domestic abuse trial about four months before his murder, Vince Sherry was recorded saying, quote, so he's talking to this woman and Mm -hmm. she's talking about being scared of her spouse who is going into prison yeah and this is how he's comforting her I, <laughs> I don't know how comforting it is but this is how he comforted her uh-huh. he said quote would you believe in the last two weeks I've had an out-of-state threat on my life and an in-city threat on my life and I know where it's coming from but I'll see myself in the pits of hell before I'll be afraid of these people so <laughs>
1: So I don't. Know. <laughs> yeah, he's comforting her. Yeah, he's just
0: telling her, "Don't be afraid. Yeah, You're being a wiener. A Somebody's woman. trying to kill me." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. I don't know. But anyway, uh, that's what he said. Okay. And Vince never named a person threatening him. Mm-hmm. So,
1: and he never did, filed a police report or anything.
0: No. Mm-hmm. And this means from the beginning, police just didn't have very many official suspects. Okay. So this next chunk happens roughly over the course of two years. I'm just going to kind of break it down in a bite-sized way so it's a little easier to understand. Great. So the main suspects in the crime ended up being a cocaine trafficker and client of Vince Sherry's named Diamond Betsy Inman. And Margaret and Vince, Sherry's eldest son, Eric. Oh, really? So those were the two top suspects at the beginning of the case. Whoa. Now, Diamond Betsy didn't pan out. That was all make ups At one point, she had accused her attorney, Vince Sherry, of stealing from her while she was locked up. She had a lot of cash. She had yeah. been trafficking cocaine. She was really famous for having this huge diamond collection and all these crazy cars. She's pretty <laughs> off the wall. Yeah. I could do a whole thing about her, but I, I don't have the time. Yeah. But, uh she's basically like Vince Sherry stole a bunch of stuff from me. He had access because of client attorney privilege and what I've given him to like get into lock boxes and do all this stuff. And he stole from me.
1: Yeah. So that, Led her to be a suspect.
0: Well, she hinted at retaliation. She was uh-huh. pretty open about being mad about him. But when the police actually sat down and interviewed Diamond Betsy, she said she had found God and she didn't know anything about the Sherry murder. She was just <laughs> like, I don't know.
1: I'm over. I sold my cocaine. Now I'm at church. What do you want? <laughs> well, she's in jail, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you could be at church and in jail, you know?
0: Now, Uh. Eric's journey to being a suspect is complicated, but it boiled down to two key points. One, he was secretly an adopted child. And two, he was a low-level pot dealer in Florida. So basically the police theory was that Eric was this bad boy living in Florida, you know, selling a little bit of drugs. And he killed his parents in a rage after finding out he was actually adopted. So the big family secret was that Eric was actually Margaret Sherry's biological nephew. Yeah, And the only person who knew besides their parents about the adoption was their oldest kid, Lynn Spazito. (laughs) yeah so that's one thing to keep in your head okay. right? and police thought like when Eric got to the scene of the crime where his you know parents were found that he was eerily calm and more focused on the care of their dogs you know they had this feeling like he just wasn't grieving in the right way mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. which is pretty common you yeah know?
1: yeah you can't judge anything
0: on that no you can't but yeah. they were like he wasn't sad enough he wasn't yeah. crying he was cold and calculated And on top of that, a couple of friends had told police that Eric had mentioned an impromptu trip to Biloxi on the night of his parents' murder. So it turns out, one, Uh Eric was fully proven to be in Florida on the night of his parents' murder. Two, he was cold to police when his parents were murdered because he felt local officials had something to do with the murder. Uh And he was like, I'm not going to give him the satisfaction of like intimidation or sadness. He was really angry. Were the
1: police also pissed at the dad because the dad's always, um, you know, representing the criminals?
0: I didn't hear a lot of Uh that, but... um, Maybe. Maybe. I don't really know. They're not...
1: I I was just wondering if they are just mad at his mom or if they were also mad at both of them.
0: I think the idea is not necessarily that they're mad at anybody. It's more that they work for Blessie and... So, like politically, they just feel like they're not going to put a lot of work into helping the Sherrys solve the murder. Okay, but there's a—it's complicated because also, Biloxi has this long history of like paying off officials and bribing cops and doing all this stuff to kind of look the other way. So, someone like a clean them up person, like mm-hmm. Margaret, is annoying.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: And the third thing that turns out is. Eric actually didn't know he was adopted, even at the time of the investigation. Lynn ended up having to plead with police not to tell them. She was like, Uh, hey, dummy, I'm the only one who knows, and he's not mad at me. He doesn't know. Don't give him a lie detector test and ask him yeah (laughs) like he just lost his parents he doesn't need to know that they weren't actually his parents right now she felt like she really didn't want him to know and for that reason she really didn't want him to take a lie detector test because he had an airtight alibi you know everyone saw him neighbors friends family saw him in Florida barbecuing on the night of his parents murder yeah and she just felt like what you're gonna do is blow the lid off of this
1: kid's stability right yeah understandably
0: So there was some back and forth about Eric taking a lie detector test and a drug test. But ultimately, the police's focus on Eric made the Sherry family even more convinced that the investigation was a sham. They felt like they were just targeting the family over and over again. In the spring of 1988, six months after Vince and Margaret were murdered, the relationship between Biloxi officials and the Sherry family became more openly contentious. Lynn started stating publicly, Lynn started publicly criticizing the investigation and began receiving threatening phone calls warning her to just drop it. Hmm. Eric Sherry joined his sister Lynn and after some particularly edgy interviews with local papers, Mayor Blessy instructed the police to re interview Eric and make him take a lie detector test, even though his alibi was airtight. So there's definitely some. Oh my retaliation. god, what do you mean
1: edgy interviews?
0: Like people they were just I mean, from what I've read. They're just coming out and saying this investigation is bad. People yeah. aren't doing a good job, you know. Like they're they're just being open about how they feel like, yeah, that they're purposefully doing a bad job on uh-huh. this investigation.
1: So they're like testy.
0: Yeah, sure, you can use that.
1: <laughs> edgy, testy. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> I just, you were like edgy interviews. I was like, who are they? Like? <laughs> naked during the interview no. Or something? <laughs> <laughs>
0: no they were just like putting a finer point on uh-huh. on their dissatisfaction yeah
1: they were getting testy <laughs>
0: <laughs> in 1988 pete Hillette addressed the public feud between the sherry family and the biloxi officials by telling the sun herald that quote Everything that has been said now has been said over and over again. Many people have said many things more out of frustration, disappointment, and anger than anything else. I don't think it's productive except to possibly allow some people to get rid of a little
1: steam. This fool just keeps telling everyone not to have a problem.
0: I know. And, and like, I know. And nothing has happened. You he know what I mean? He killed
1: them, right? Listen, dude. Or had them killed
0: <laughs> so Hallett also just, by the way, by yeah. this time in 1988 had still not dissolved the partnership that he had with Vince Sherry and divided the assets. So that meant that Lynn couldn't settle the family estate. So she was like, can you please do this? Because we're trying to like pay for lawyers and do all these different oh, things. Wow. And they can't settle the estate because this piece hasn't been done. Whoa. So the relationship with between Hallett and the Sherry family was strained. Now, what Lynn didn't know at the time was that Biloxi Law Enforcement actually had a small break in the case in 1988. They found something weird in her father's law firm phone records. In the nine months leading up to Vince and Margaret's murder, there were over 340 back and forth calls between the Louisiana State Penitentiary, otherwise known as Angola, and Pete Hallett's office number.
1: Angola as in the prison that's known for making these kind of foam silencers.
0: Yes. So for anyone who needs to know, this is like an absurd amount of phone calls to have between a lawyer and their client over nine months. Like, lawyers are like yeah maybe two a month or three uh-huh. three hundred and forty and nine months is crazy town uh the calls were made between pete Hillette, mm-hmm. an inmate named kirksey mccord nicks jr and pete hallette's paralegal sherry laray who also happened to be nicks jr's girlfriend hallette told police the phone calls were all business nicks jr was his client And he had hired Laray as a favor to Nix to take care of Nix Jr.'s smaller financial matters, Uh AKA, you know, keeping an eye on Nix's money for him. Uh And Sherry Laray shook her big, poofy, blonde head in agreement. Police interviewed Nick's Jr. at Angola. And while odd, their stories all checked out. They just couldn't find any connection to the Sherry murders. You know, they were like, this is their relationship. I'm sorry. He's not
1: just calling his lawyer. He's also calling his girlfriend. Mm -hmm.
0: We'll talk about that later. But basically, Uh Hillette just on paper called Sherry LeRae a paralegal. And that meant she got client privilege. Right. Uh, like client,
1: what is it? I don't know.
0: Attorney client privileges. Uh, yeah, yeah. So when she called Nick's Jr. at Angola, their calls weren't monitored and she could send him like nude pics and stuff and they wouldn't like catch it. She was sending him like nude pics and pot and stuff like that.
1: If I go to jail, we are getting you a paralegal job. Oh, That's yeah. guaranteed. That'd be tight. That's so tight. Also, just, I'm sorry. I'm in jail for nine months. I'm going to call my lawyer 300 times. Okay. Well, I swear. I, I have a one number I'm dialing. <laughs> no, I have. Yeah. Maximalist freedom. Stop.
0: So after police meet with Nix Jr., they say, mm-hmm. did you do it? He says, no. They say, well, case closed. The entire case was passed on to a brand new investigative team. No one from the department looked further into Sherry Laray or Nick's Jr. And the FBI refused to get involved as there wasn't a uh, federal crime committed.
1: So- Hold on. I'm so sorry. But was Nick's Jr. locked up at the time of the murder? Yeah. So there's no way he could have done it. It's just weird that there was this many phone calls. Yeah.
0: I mean, the phone calls couldn't have happened if he wasn't in jail,
1: right? <laughs> well, but they happened, because you said, oh, in the nine months pro- after the thing. Right, right, you know. right,
0: right. No, he's still in jail. Okay. Um, we'll talk a little bit about Nick's, a lot about Nick's later in the next episode, but uh-huh. he was in jail for murder. He was not getting out. So he's a crazy killer. Okay. Not getting out. Okay. Very suspicious, but, you
1: but know. But locked up at the time of this particular crime. Exactly. Okay.
0: So the case is passed on to a new investigative team. No one from the department looked further into Cheryl Lerar our next junior. And, you know, at the end of her rope, Lynn's trying to get the FBI involved. The FBI is refusing to get involved because there's no federal crime mm-hmm. committed that they can see. Mm-hmm. So this new task force was assembled to help clean up this stagnated potentially botched investigation in 1988 and this task force was not as robust as the first it was comprised of a single full-time detective and kind of two helper guys so the good thing about this is that this new task force seemed a lot more open to working with lynn throughout the investigation Uh The there was a lot of opposition. Lynn was really involved in the investigation to begin with, but they became more and more contentious and she got less and less information,
1: right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: And this task force did a few solid things. Like they were the one who caught the yellow firebird mistake and told Lynn about it. And then like a few other things like, hey, this was a mistake, that was a mistake. And they're really transparent.
1: It seems like one badass detective could bust this whole thing open.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Like give me a task force, but give me one... Solid mf'er with two of his little helpers along, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If so he needs a third, I'll <laughs> be his little third intern, you know?
0: In November of 1988, the new task force told Lynn about the Kirksey Nix Jr. and Pete Hallett phone calls. Up until this point, she didn't know about those phone calls. Mm-hmm. So they were like, hey, just by the way... Your buddy, your family friend, Pete Hallett, has also just been investigated Mm -hmm. for these reasons. There's something fishy about this, but we don't understand what it could be. Now, in 1989, the next year, two major things happened. Pete Hallett became the 12th mayor of Biloxi running on Margaret Sherry's anti-corruption platform. Right. Lynn Spazito, by the way, was clear he did not have the family's endorsement. Mm-hmm. And Lynn Spazito took things into her own hands and hired a private investigator. Rex Armistead was an ex-state trooper, bald, broad-shouldered, and tough. And he had a broad network of snitches at his disposal. <laughs> Lynn Spazito financed her new PI, which I think by what I've read was $50,000. It was pretty expensive. Yeah, damn. By selling her family's story to Edward Hume, who eventually published the book Mississippi Mud, which is the primary source for our story today.
1: That's a pretty badass hustle. Like, okay, I'm going to sell our story here so you'll have firsthand knowledge of all, how everything that's happened up to this point and how it unfolds. And I'm going to use that money to then solve the, my parents murder.
0: Yeah. And Edward Hume is an excellent writer. He's yeah. this book is fascinating yeah. and it has all of these firsthand accounts. Plus he just has this really great finger on the pulse of Biloxi. It's just yeah. really interesting to hear him talk about it. All
1: right. And now she's got this badass PI. This is what I'm talking about. One guy. Yeah. All right, here we go.
0: Okay, so like I said, the new police force was much more cooperative with Lynn, and so they ended up opening their records to Armistead. They said, go ahead, take them, see what you can do with this. Mm -hmm. Rex Armistead was drawn back to Pete Hallett, the law office, the phone calls, and Angola. Now... Perksy McCord Nix Jr. was a well-known figure in the Dixie Mafia. He was the son of a powerful Oklahoma judge, and his longtime mentor was strip club magnate and Dixie Mafia kingpin Mike Gillich Jr. Now, Nix Jr. was serving a sentence of life without parole for murdering a man in New Orleans during a botched home invasion. Rumor had it that Nix Jr., was running a scam out of Angola, netting hundreds of thousands of dollars. And based on the volume of phone calls coming into his office, Pete Hallett looked like he was involved in managing some significant amount of money for Nix.
1: What was the scam?
0: Armistead went down to (laughs) Angola, right? Yes. Not to talk to Nix Jr., who like I mean, there's a little blurb in this in the book, but basically he was like, yeah, you're going to ask Nick's Jr. Did he do it? And he says, no. And you're like, okay, (laughs) done. So he went down to Angola Mm -hmm. not to talk to Nick's Jr., which he thought was a dead end, but rather to talk to one of the snitches in Rex's network that he knew was involved with the Dixie Mafia in some capacity. Bobby Joe Fabian was in Angola for murdering a horse breeder. And while he knew he wasn't going to beat his sentence, he wanted a transfer out of Angola, a notoriously nightmarish prison. For a transfer, Bobby Joe was willing to spill some beans, some beans about a nationwide scam involving sexy personal ads, a network of answering services, fraud, extortion, and excellent vocal impersonations, all <laughs> perpetrated by Kirksey Nix Jr. and other members of the Dixie Mafia. Next week, we'll see the (laughs) FBI get down and dirty and involved, do a deep dive on the Dixie Mafia, and answer the question of who killed Vince and Margaret Sherry and why.
1: Right here next week on (laughs) Muriel's Murder. And as always, (laughs) we're going to try to get it out early on patreon.com slash Muriel's Murder. No
0: promises.
1: Uh, Do you want to give us some sources, Little Miss Researcher?
0: Okay. Mississippi Mud by Edward Hume. Great book. I highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. Good old Wikipedia helping me figure out when the hell the Civil War
1: was. All these 1600s and 1800s. Too <laughs> I much. tell you,
0: I almost messed this up so bad. Yeah. I caught it, and I was like, "Woo!" <laughs> 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 and also, uh-huh. there's a great series uh, called The 1980s, The Deadliest Decade. Uh, I was watching it. The production's really funny and great. But uh-huh. anyway, season two, episode six, The Dixieland Murders is another source that we used. And it was very informative.
1: Uh, I love it. Well, this is really living up to all the hype <laughs> that I didn't know existed until you did the intro for the show. But
0: <laughs> uh, Thanks, Nick.
1: We love Mario's music. Definitely tune in to his new song with Joey Cool and Tech9. It's called Mega Grit. It's a high-octane banger. Definitely good if you're working out of the gym or need to go for a run. You know, get yourself pumped up. Uh, and if you haven't heard of Tech9, uh, this is just why we're excited about it. I'm mm-hmm. just, I'm just, I'm just bragging on my brother. It's very exciting to me. Um, if you haven't heard of Tech9, he's been one of the greats since 1999. So we're very, very proud of Mario. And a little tidbit for all of our Patreon family who listen to the Mac Dre episode. We do mention Tech Nine in that story and in his verse on Megagrit, produced by Mario Castellini. Tech Nine gives Mac Dre a shout out when he says Peace to the Furly, because Furley was an alias of Mac Dre. Uh-huh. Very cool. I'm really into this. Very <laughs> good. Uh, so, Stream Joey Cool's new album. It's out on Strange Music. The album is called The Chairman of the Board. Mario has four beats on it, including Megagrit. Follow Mario on Instagram at Beats. And I'll put the uh, link to the music video in the show notes of this episode. Okay, very cool. Moving on. That was very good. Uh, We also love all of our listeners. Thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murder. She did all the research writing and hosting I did all the recording the announcements about Mario's music and <laughs> etc this podcast is recorded in uh, sunny Los Angeles in our dark and very very hot living room <laughs> to help support the podcast
0: and to unlock exclusive episodes you can sign up for our patreon at www.patreon.com slash Muriel's murder
1: and like we said we're gonna to try to get part two of this episode up on that site um, before it comes out next Wednesday. Quit hassling me. I'm not hassling you. I'm just telling the people. even if we get it done hours early, I'll put it up (laughs) early on Patreon. (laughs) You know what I mean? I love our Patreon people. Anyways, uh, follow us on social media at Muriel's Murders, blah, blah, blah. You know the deal.
0: Rate and review Muriel's Murders on Apple Podcasts. It does help us grow. We read every single one. We uh, really like getting compliments. So go ahead.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that's it. We already we already talked too much about Mario, so that's it. Okay, that's the end of this episode, and we love you very much.
0: Bye.